Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Marixa Lasso. She's the author of Erased, the untold story of the Panama Canal, published this year by Harvard University Press. This book takes us on a tour of the Panama Canal zone through the stories of the towns that were destroyed or moved as the canal was constructed. It challenges most narratives about that place by arguing that the zone was not built out of empty jungle. Rather, it was a region that had been at the center of trade networks for hundreds of years, and canal officials and the U.S. government reimagined it as a jungle so that the canal would appear to be its entrance into modernity. Everything you thought you knew is wrong. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Marixa. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Alejandra. Thank you for the interview. Um, So the book uncovers a history that really, once you know it, it seems so obvious and so hard to believe that we hadn't heard it before. Uh, and so I, I thought that was really fascinating aspect of it. I want, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to start with the title, Erased, because it's really about a double kind of erasure, a material erasure, but also a kind of discursive erasure. And so can you, can you talk a little bit about, about the title and, and really about the broad argument of the book before we get into the details? Yes, Anna, you're absolutely right. The title is about that double erasure, the landscape that gets erased, um, the, the old Panamanian urban landscape of the trans, that crossed the, that connected the ocean, the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. That's erased. But what I'm arguing in the book is that in addition to a landscape that is erased, a whole history is erased, and a whole understanding of both Panamanian and Latin American history is erased. And as historians of space and landscapes know, landscapes reflect our worldview. And my argument in the book is that that erasure of Panamanian building of this uh, route coincided with a historical erasure of Latin American building or construction of its own history. So at what point did you realize that you had a book? How did you come to this topic in the first place? By accident. (laughs) (laughs) Like the best things in life. (laughs) I was at the National Archives. I had a different project. I was working. I wanted to do an urban history of Colón City, the Atlantic port of Panama. And I, be, I wanted to look at the, at the American side of that city. There was an American and a Panamanian side. So looking at the, at the National Archives records, on, on, I, I found this record about Town Sites Committee. And then a whole world emerged. That surprised me. And I realized, and, and, I mean, I'm Panamanian. I grew up in Panama, and I had never heard about it. At the richness of that, story surprised me. And I said, I I need to understand this. I need to work on this. And I abandoned the other project and went into this. And it was, and it became something that was one surprise after the other. For example, something else that I didn't know 
because the, the story that I have heard was that, you know, the towns that were there were flooded. It was my surprise as realizing they were not. So it was one surprise after the other. Yeah, and that um, that final chapter about the your argument about what actually happened in the flooding, I'm going to talk about that, that sort of towards the end. But first, let's just start at the beginning. And one of the things that you argue really is that initially it wasn't the erase, it wasn't the material, but it was actually the discursive erasure that happens first. So this region that's been at the heart of exchanges and circulations that define modernity, right, are narrated as backwards backwaters, primitive, outside of circulation, right? Can you maybe talk a little bit about that process? Yes, and because I, I really I became convinced in this, in this, during this project that we treat people um, and how we treat people depends on how we understand them and how we understand them depends on how we understand their history. That was very clear in the case of Panama. No, this is a region of Colombia. And in the 19th century, what did that mean when Americans come to Panama in 1904 to build the canal? That this country, this region was at the forefront of republicanism. No, in the 19th century, when most places in the world were monarchies, this was a republic. But not only that, it was a black republic in the tropics. And where there were black mayors, black citizens voting, participating in politics. Um, next to a major railroad, a major communication hub. But with the ideas about the tropics in the 19th century, could not acknowledge or accept that black Republicans could be at the forefront of any kind of innovation. So there was at first this discursive erasure of their protagonism in the history of this communication hub that is Panama. And once you disconnect them from that history, it becomes easier to depopulate the region, to expel them from the region. Yeah, and before the depopulation, there's this very fascinating process that you trace, really three different periods, a slow transition towards U.S. dominance or hegemony or whatever you want to call it. And I found that really fascinating to think about this this kind of the way that sovereignty is not either you know one way or the other but it really is a process and this and this there's these kind of things that get taken away slowly um can you talk about that a little bit and then i want to also ask you about this disfranchisement which was really very striking yes i mean uh one another surprise is that um panamanians have studied very carefully how the Canal Zone and the canal went back to Panama, no? How Panamanians recovered control over the route, over the canal. But we never really understood or studied how it happened the other way around. I mean, how the U.S. Um, appropriated this territory that was fully occupied as it was easy and it was not easy and it was not simple because it was the most densely populated part of the country, full of towns and municipalities. So it was a very slow process. Um, it was not like the U.S. came with a clear idea of what it was going to do there. And you can see that it's a slow process that the first thing is to rule the region, which makes sense if you think that it's a, it's a densely populated region. No? And then their negotiation over what exactly does it mean, the Panama Canal Treaty of 1903, how is it going to be enforced? And, and it's, a, it's not, nothing was predetermined. 
And there's a lot of interpretation that happens slowly. So the first, so you talk about three different periods, right? Yes. Um, one is when they are trying to share power, I guess, or maintaining Panamanian sovereignty. Well, not really. What are they doing? <laughs> the first, the first period is not maintaining Panamanian sovereignty, but governing Panamanians like they were doing in Puerto Rico. And then the second, and the a second, move. Uh huh. And the, go but, ahead. Yes. So the first is is the U.S. is governing this region like they govern Puerto Rico, let's say. So they are acknowledging local politics, local uh, mayors. No, it's not yet a company town. It's just a region that has changed from one government to another, but keeping all the structures that both Colombian and Americans understood as a way to govern towns, which which is the you know municipal governments. Um, but then that became complicated, and this the second moment is when the municipalities are eliminated and replaced with administrative districts. You no, know? so. It's now the company, the Panama Canal, uh, the, the ICC, the Ismian Canal Commission, that is governing, not anymore a municipal government, but company government. That's the second moment. And to me, that moment is crucial because once you disconnect the towns that are there from their previous municipal history and their previous urban history, uh, it becomes easier to imagine it without towns and without people. And the third moment is when um, the Ismian Canal Commission decides to depopulate and has a huge debate about that and decides we're going to depopulate the zone and it decides to expel and to eliminate all the Panamanian towns that were there. So there's two things that I wanted to... Ha- uh, talk about that happened in between the second and the third, or I guess during that period. One is this question of disfranchisement, right? This mm-hmm. tradition of voting and and participatory um, uh, democratic traditions gets eliminated. Um, so, can you tell us when when did that happen and how? What was that process? Uh, well, that happened in. Uh... So the first thing they come in 1904, it, it makes sense. It's like, well, we find here all this town, there are majors, there are people, and there's a long tradition of municipal government. And the first, one of the first laws are the municipal regulations that create the Eastman Canal Commission, and they leave them there. But something special happens because since this is a U.S. territory, but it's in Panama, and Panamanians live there in these municipalities to vote, they have to leave their towns and go outside of the canals and borders to vote in, in, in Panama City or Colón City. So it's a funny, they are citizens of Panama living in U.S. territory under municipal governments. There are American, but uh, so it's a strange combination, no? That yeah. is happening there, um, but still, um, there's still a recognition that they have the right to be governed by municipalities and by majors. And one thing that I found fascinating is how, when U.S. majors begin to replace Panamanian majors, they begin to defend their their citizens, not even against the, the Ismian Canal Commission. They take seriously their jobs, and maybe mm-hmm. that's why they are eliminated. <laughs> So the the next stage is a really fascinating one, and 
Um, this is when the U.S. decides that it's going to modernize and make these towns like more, more, more modern as opposed to what they conceived of as less modern in the in the towns that already existed, right? And there are, there are a series of processes that you described um, in a really interesting way. And I loved the section about screens, um, maybe because it reminded me of Luis Perez's description of the importance of screens in on becoming Cuban. And so I wonder if you can tell, talk about screens and why they mattered. What was their significance in that in that moment in that process? Well, yes, because the screens are, are a symbol of so many things. No, I, I, at least that's how I read it. Because first, they're new. They're they're new technology. Uh, so you you see these government officials and, and and builders figuring out how to actually use them. But also, and this is perhaps very important, is that we see here how do we justify controlling this territory? And the justification is health. Now we're bringing health. Um, and one of the arguments is that, well, when, when the Spanish arrived, they justified everything with religion. Now we're bringing the true religion. And now it is the justification is we're bringing sanitation and paving and, and, and modern cities. And so screens have a very important part because Panama was this place of yellow fever and malaria. So protecting against mosquitoes was crucial. But at the same time, it was expensive to screen everybody. So who gets to be screened? White workers, black workers, everybody, even non-workers. And, and that begins an enormous debate. But it's not only that. It's also screens are ugly for some people. so there is this beautiful hotel for example that they are building the Tivoli Hotel and they begin to discuss should we screen the Tivoli Hotel it's ugly to screen them yes but if an important person gets malaria we're going to have a bad reputation Uh, so better screen it but also and perhaps this is what you're getting at uh, in the debate of what gets to be screened or not you have health officers like Gorga saying we have to screen everybody and then other people saying that's too expensive. We cannot. We're only going to screen white workers. And that uh, that is because it's impossible to screen everybody. If we screen black workers, then we have to screen the entire population of the canal zone. Before the population, that's a lot of people, and we cannot do it. You know? And and that's when you, you begin to see the impossibility of of having this perfect society that they are trying to create in a densely populated area. And that um, maybe leads towards the realization on the part of U.S. officials that this effort to modernize these towns is not going to work. I think that that's what you argue. Is that correct? Well, I mean, part, that's part of the story. Yes, it's not, it's not going to work in the way they, they, they envision it. First, because they're already modern, so you cannot modernize what is already modern. Right. What they cannot do is make them an example, perfect. No, perfection does not exist anywhere. It doesn't exist in New York of the early 20th century. It doesn't exist in Panama or the Panama Canal Zone. It doesn't exist. Uh, uh, industrial modernity is full of poverty, tenements. Um. And that was true everywhere. But that's not what Panama, the area about the, around the Panama Canal was supposed to be. You know, this was supposed to be an area that, that it was a showcase 
no, of U.S. modernity in the world. And that was impossible to do it with lots of people. And they realized that. I mean, that's part of what begins to happen. No, they, they, they cannot enforce every regulation, every dream they have of how a perfect city should be. As, the, as it's impossible any, every, anywhere. No, Panama mm-hmm. is not special in that case. So, so then the process of moving begins and of sort of basically kicking people out of their homes and moving them to new places. And um, the description that you offer is, is both chaotic and sad. Um, and you refer to a few documents. And so I wonder um, if we can pause here and, and um, have you just talk a little bit about what kinds of sources you had to get at those experiences, the experiences of people moving and being forced out of their homes and, and experiencing that, that kind of sense of unsettlement and, and loss, right? Yes. Well, once the decision is made to depopulate, and, 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 and that's a decision that has several steps, it's not immediate, and have even a Congress commission from Washington coming down to Panama and debate whether or not to depopulate the zone, then the process starts, no? And we're talking here lives around 14% of Panama's population. So it's, it's huge. It's huge. Like everything related to the Panama Canal, the depopulation is also a huge process, although not one that was advertised, like the size of the locks or the size um, uh, of, of, of the Culebra cut or other things. So the documents that I find, on the one hand, there are the documents of the of the, the Ismian Canal Commission that just detail things like how many trains, how many people live in one day, where are we taking them, how are the negotiations with the pa- Panama's government. But then the hardest part is to find how people felt or thought about it. And some things we'll never know. But there were a few crucial documents that I found of letters written to Panama's government on behalf of citizens and some letters written to the the Ismian Canal Commission um, also complaining about the process. Uh, One was an anonymous letter. It was very, very painful. And then there was this very rare uh, document that it was a song the one song that I found talking about this process too. No, but it's really, it was, it's really hard to find that sort of how people uh, felt, except for very few, few, few documents. And there were some in Panama there, and the National Archive, uh, the Foreign Relations Archives in Panama, also that describe, you know, from the perspective of local towns, they, they continue to write to their government, this is not fair. This is not right. Um, we were some people were already moved once. For example, the people that lived in the place where the two lots were built, they said we were moved once, and we were told that this new settlement would be permanent. So we built our houses, or fields, or farms, and now you're telling us that we have to move again. Um, so there were those documents also in the letters to Panama's government, and they are hoping that their government can protect them or help them stay the experience it really makes you think about that experience and the the kind of craziness of the idea of just moving an entire town right 
Um, and we know that that has happened in other settings, but I was really, um, I was really sort of struck by the descriptions of some of the things and the ways that even the descriptions of the place allowed us to get a sense of that, um, I don't know, d- dissonance, right? So there was this one really fascinating description of the new town that opened and, and there were all of these stores in the new town, right? Which were, which were just basically moved from the old town, but the old town had had lots of people going through and lots of people to, to be customers in the stores. But the new one was so isolated that there weren't people for the stores, but the stores were still existing because that's what people did. Right. And so, (laughs) um, um, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. No, I was just asking you, I just wanted to hear more about that. Yes, this is this is one of the oldest towns, no? Because in this area there were railroad towns and then there were colonial towns, and this is one of the colonial towns, Gorgona, um, that had been always there at the intersection between the Chagres River, which was what the waterway before the Panama Canal, and the mule path that connected the Chagres River to Panama City. No, it was before the canal. It was a a combination of river and mule tracks. That's how you cross Panama. So this was an important town that was an intersection of these two ways of transport. So this town in the middle, who had been at the middle of everything for centuries, all of a sudden is depopulated and sent far away from Panama City and from anything and any, any central part. And this town of storekeepers and store owners move with their stores and there's a description that is is almost like Garcia Marquez Macondo like of store owners looking at each other in their stores full of goods with nobody to buy from them and that's to me a heartbreaking story of displacement of somebody being taken away from their context and their culture and put somewhere else, and they don't know what to do in this new place that has nothing to do with who they are or what their culture is. Yeah, so those stories, each town has a particular story, and you, you tell those really beautifully. So there's Chagres, there's New Limon, there's New Gatun, and each one of them, Chagres loses access to the river, New Limon has to move twice, New Gatun takes over two years to move, and I'm just now you mentioned sort of Garcia Marquez, and I was I was re- thinking as I was reading, what's the overriding? How would you, where do you land on the interpretation? Because there are so many possible ways to think about this. There's a kind of, um, there's a, a story about contingency. There's a story about tragedy. There's a story about absurdity. There's a story about powerless or exploitation. Where do you think you land, or or, or do you want to in- incorporate all of those into the story? I think they are all part of the story, but I, I think there is a special way in which the story is told, in which humor erases, I'm talking about the title of the book again, tragedy. No? Because there mm-hmm. is there are two tones of this story. There is a tone of the people being displaced that is always tragic. That's the tone of their letters, of their of their complaints, of how they represent what's happening to them. And then there is this, the, the tone of the stories told about them in the Panama Canal Record, for example, which is a story of humor, in and, and in which you say, Oh, these poor 
first they don't say how big these towns are, and they begin to tell the story of these little towns in the middle of the jungle who need to give way to progress, and how and they take these humorous stories about how these savage people don't understand the magnitude of what's going on, no? which is absolutely not true. They understand perfectly well everything that's going on and the magnitude of it. But there is this humor, humor, humorous way in which you transform these people in these sort of nature-like creatures that, that have to give way to progress, but, you, but in a tone that is humorous. No? And, and that, that difference in the two tones to me is very important for this story. So how do you how do you combine them and where do you end up? Well, I think I combine them in the sense that I think is the humor that erases the tragedy, no? Here. Um mm-hmm. and minimizes it too. No, because it, uh, and, and that's not that I'm not that that's my specialty, but it's very, very clear in the documents. And, it's, and I think it's a tragic story in many, many ways. And part of the thing about it, why I think it's important to remember this story and to give it back its tragic tone is because um, if it was erased, not only the towns, but also their protagonism. And I do think, and I, I, I think I talk a lot about that in the book, is that if you forget that you helped build something, then you have less rights in your own cultural uh, or collective imagination to determine the future of that place. And that's kind of what happened there. So in the last chapter, we're going to come back to this myth um, that the flooding of Lake Gatun forced people out of their homes. And you start right away in the beginning of the chapter saying, this is the story, but it's wrong. And let me tell you the right story. So maybe you can share with us the, the correct interpretation of, of what happened yes i mean i i was i still remember i mean i always thought there was this beautiful novel with which i start uh this story called pueblos perdidos lost towns that tell the story of this gatun lake covering towns and this tragic but but at the same time you think after the story well if you wanted a canal these have to happen and i still remember the first time Looking at all maps, when I realized that the towns were not flooded, that huge towns were not flooded, like Emperador or Nuevo Gatún or Chagres, I'm like, what is going on here? I, I could not believe it. I mean, uh, that story was so entrenched that I could not believe what I was looking at in the maps. And then, well, it was finding, well, when there's a different explanation, if it was not flooding, why? What happened? And um, and that's when I realized that there are two different stories. One is the story of the building of the canal and the kind of technology you needed to build the canal, which is a fascinating story, but not really the story of my book. And then there is the other story of the area around the canal, the canal zone, and how this area was going to look like. And that's the story of the depopulation, is the story of the canal zone not of the Panama Canal, which we you tend to conflate, but are two separate stories. And that's what I, what I realized. Know that that's exactly what happened. It was the story of how are we going to govern and organize the towns around the canal. And that's really what, what, what led to the depopulation, not the flooding. 
And from there, everything flows. And you point out that those towns um, were not actually flooded. The water came um, very close, but they but they weren't. Some were not even close. Uh, Emperador, <laughs> for example, is really far from the lake. Uh-huh. Um, so is Nuevo Chagres. is not on the lake. Gorgona, which is the emblematic flooded town, I thought it was in the middle of the lake. I mean, that's my my. And then I realized, no, it was the, only half of it was flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could have moved it a little bit if that had been the intention. But but no, that that was not what happened. The ones that were flooded, there were some that were flooded actually, were the small the small ones, but the big ones, um, they were not. And not even Gorgona, it was only half flooded. So you open and you close the book with stories of your own experiences, which makes perfect sense, but also about the Panamanians that you interacted with. And I was really curious about how they're going to receive this complete rewriting of their history. Have they already um, received the book? Have, have you presented it there? What, what do you think your audience is going to um, make of, of this new, new way to understand the Canal Zone? Well, um, it's, I already presented it in Panama, and, and, uh, and I made a point um, a month ago to not only present it in Panama City, but to go to one of the towns. And I went to Nuevo Chagres. I chose Nuevo Chagres uh, because the local memory there is very, very strong. They remember your story. They have their own versions of the story. I spoke with them, and I, tr- I tried to do my best to incorporate it into the book of how they remember that. Um, so it was, it's been a very, and also we invited them to Panama City. Not all, not all the time, it was impossible, but to representative, not to come uh, to the presentation in Panama City. And I think this is a conversation that is just starting. I mean, that's my hope, no? That it becomes a place, the book, to remember for many other people to, to remember uh, or bring back the stories they heard from the grandparents or great-grandparents. And that's already beginning to happen. I mean, I'm beginning to hear from people who tell me, oh, my grandmother was from Emperador, or my grandmother was from Cruces. And that's or, or, that's beginning to happen. And the reaction in Panama City, um, it's, it's, so far, has been positive, a, a reaction of surprise. And something kind of amazing is that, and that we haven't talked about, is that the Panama Canal story has been told as a U.S. story. And being told by specialists in U.S. history, because it's not seen as part of Latin American history, really, no. And that has had an effect on how this story has been written. And for Panamanians, um, they have not. There were no Panamanian book written by a Panamanian about the Panama Canal construction from the perspective of Panama. So one uh, on one interview I had was. Um, some the person interviewing this young man in a TV uh, station said, yes, I was hearing about the story of the Panama Canal in my classes. And I kept asking, and what about us? What about us? No, (laughs) in some ways, this book is that answer. What about us? No, this (laughs) canal was not built just anywhere because the story is, you know, it was built in Panama and there is a previous history and there were people there and they affected and were part of that story. Yeah, that's a a wonderful way to have a book um, 
sort of appear in the world, I think. Um, so I've taken up lots of your time, but I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about a next project that you're working on, something equally fascinating, probably. I don't know. I am playing with ideas. I'm, I'm a little bit um, scared of saying, but one thing that right now I am I'm, I'm torn with the idea is doing a story of, of um, how to call it, heat, <laughs> or how we have lived in warm climates and how we have dealt with humidity and heat over time. No. Uh, with different technologies as they change over time all the way to air conditioner in a place like Panama where there were so many technologies that have changed over time of how to deal with this, with temperature. And, um, and I'm very drawn by this story in part because I grew up in that moment of transition between houses that were not air conditioner where they, they were about cross ventilation and breeze to air conditioning houses with an enormous environmental uh, effect, no um, enormous use of energy. Uh, times when we know that's not the way, um, and that they have enormous environmental costs. So I'm really curious. I would like to recover the history of before AC and how people used to live uh, from pre-Columbian times to colonial times to U.S. Uh, technologies of early 20th century to 1950s. Uh, urban architects who were dealing with heat and breeze to the present. That does sound fascinating. And I think that given given the current climate issues, we will probably be using some of those techniques again. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Alejandra. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. 